There's a heat wave right now in the SEC as hot seats are warming up everywhere from Fayetteville, Arkansas to College Station, Texas. We didn't know if many coaches in the SEC would find their way onto the hot seat this season. What were we thinking? Hot seat uh, spares very few inside the nation's uh, most pressure-packed conference. Welcome in to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer with John Adams. John, I didn't think we would be starting with Arkansas, Mississippi State. If you would have asked me last week, that we would have headed in a different direction, but that's because I did not think Arkansas, as bad as it's been for the Hogs this season, I did not think they would muster just three points in a loss to Mississippi State and first-year coach Zach Arnett on Saturday. Sam Pittman now, John, once was the toast of college football just a couple short years ago. Now he's on a six-game losing streak, very much approaching the hot seat, fired offensive coordinator Dan Enos. What do you make of the uh, the mercury level out in Arkansas right now? It's warming up, Blake. It, it's so easy in this conference to go, though, from the toast of the town to just toast it in town. I mean, it, <laughs> it, 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 you don't think of guys on the hot seat. And we kind of have this image of Sam Flit, uh, Pittman, kind of a kind of an odd hire, not a coordinator experience, an offensive line coach, good recruiter when Arkansas hired him, but he turned the program around. Our, Arkansas was right down there with Vanderbilt. It was a Vanderbilt to the West without the academics a few years back. And he turned them around, took them to a nine and four season in the second year. But you see that a lot of times in this league where you'll make headway, but you got to keep making headway. And some programs fall back. And this team has fallen back with a lot of, a lot of close losses. It's not as though the Hogs are getting blown out Saturday after Saturday, but they're losing, and and when you're losing, it really doesn't matter that much. Yeah, there, there's frustration at a, at a few different uh, spots in the SEC. Columbia, South Carolina, Shane Beamer, all he's really succeeded in doing this season is breaking his foot when he kicked a Gatorade cooler in frustration after a loss a couple weeks ago. Well, the losses keep coming. At South Carolina, they're now at two and five. Uh, but I think the um, maybe the most serious hot seat conversations reside in Arkansas with Sam Pittman, the fourth year coach who went from nine and four two years ago to now he's going to be lucky to reach four wins. And also in College Station, John, where Jimbo Fisher, we've talked about it before, has that monstrous $77 million buyout. But the the conversation for the Aggies has to be, how long are you okay with just accepting year after year mediocrity because of the buyout, right? I mean, it's not like if they wait two months, all of a sudden the buyout goes down. I mean, it will decrease year over year by about $9 million, Jimbo's annual salary, but that still leaves his buyout in the upper 60 millions next year followed by the upper 50 millions the year after that, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's not like they're going to reach a magical point where the buyout suddenly dips to $10 million. It's going to be a historical buyout. Really, at any point, they fire Jimbo. So how bad does it have to get, do you think, for Texas A&M this year for them to say, you know what, we're not, we're not waiting anymore. Jack up the cost of oil, folks. Uh, strap in 
it's time to pass the hat and those oil tycoons make $77 million disappear. How bad does it have to get, do you think, for Texas A&M to do that? Uh, they'll start drilling for oil behind the football stadium there at Cal Field. <laughs> uh, I guess with uh, it, ego comes into play here. I, I think if 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 A&M goes 7-5, and five, I think Jimbo will get fired, and that's not out of the question. Uh, but ego comes into play here, I think, with all these boosters, with all this money, because they're not only underachieving and not achieving what they'd hoped for, certainly when they hired Jimbo Fisher, but it's kind of a one big Aggie joke. You paid, you're paying this guy nine or ten million a year for this. Uh, Kevin Sumlin could have given you that, and he did give you that for half that much. So. You're kind of the laughing stock. You just, you know, Jimbo just muddles through season after season, and and here he is doing it again. I just think at some point, those fans are going to get together, maybe on a conference call, and say, "I got five million. You got five million. Okay, how about our buddy over here? He's got five million. All right, you know, get fifteen guys with five million, and you're almost there." Yeah, and and when we say fans here, we're not talking about. Uh, Mr. Joe Blow, who's who's living in a double wide. Uh, these are, you know, Texas A&M, as much as any school is positioned to make a buyout of this proportion disappear, right? Like they, um, they have a, a fundraising machine. We saw it a few years ago when they wanted to make renovations to Kyle Field. Their revenue just shattered uh, what the normal ceiling would be. The money came flowing in. They have a very deep pocketed base of, of boosters. Uh, which drew the attention of Nick Saban a couple years ago as it pertained to NIL. But, you know, whether it be NIL, whether it be stadium renovations, or whether it be, in this case, what would be a a buyout of just astronomical proportions, Texas A&M is a school that's historically been able to make things happen financially, if not on the field. So as I look at this schedule for the Aggies, John, um, they're at four and three. I think seven and five is probably the most realistic landing spot. They have a home game this week against South Carolina. We mentioned the woes of the Gamecocks. I mean, if if Jimbo somehow finds a way to lose to lowly South Carolina, which just got trounced at Missouri on Saturday, I'm not sure there's a dollar amount in the world that could keep him employed come Thanksgiving, maybe not come Sunday morning, right? Uh, But you would think they'll beat South Carolina – they also have home games against Mississippi State and Abilene Christian on this on the schedule. So that gets you to seven if you win those three. Now, the swing games are on the road at Ole Miss, on the road at LSU. Maybe I have uh, think too much of, of a fan base's patience or willingness to let this play forward to another year, but I sort of feel like if they get one out of those two on the road, and get the three at home and finish eight and four, I think we might be seeing Jimbo next year. Do you think eight and four would be enough to buy him the to, into the 2024 season? And, and I guess how realistic do you even think eight and four is when I mention those road games at Ole Miss and LSU? I mean, I think A&M would be the underdog in both games. I think they have enough talent to win one of those games, though. But that's the thing. Their talent rarely shines through under Jimbo Fisher. I don't think A and M would make the make the move at eight and four, but I wouldn't rule it out. And, and I think nine and three seems 
extremely unlikely. I think you're right about that. So seven and five is more realistic. But, you know, as we, we look back on that, Kevin Sumlin was fired over seven and five seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that became sort of a seemed to be stuck in that seven and five rut, but it, it wasn't as though Texas A&M was a laughing stock for keeping him around. Uh, but that's now the case with Jimbo. What, what gets me about that team, it, I don't understand why it's as bad as it is. And the only thing I can point to is Jimbo. I, I look at the talent across the roster on the depth chart and I know it's playing with a backup quarterback, but Max Johnson's pretty good for a backup quarterback. Uh, see a couple of future NFL wide receivers out there. And I think uh, maybe four of those guys in defensive line are, are bound for the NFL at some point. So good linebackers. I, I just don't get it. Why is it this bad all the time? And I go back to last year, awful season, worse than this season. And lost seven games, but but then it beat LSU in the last game of the season, beat it soundly, and it it just makes you wonder if it can do that, why can't it win more often? And you keep coming up with the same answer. Jimbo's just not the coach he was when he was at Florida State and won a national title. He just isn't. Yeah, and a point of clarity, John, who's actually an eight and five rut that Kevin Sumlin was stuck in there. He had three, eight, eight and five years in a row. And then the first time he ever dipped to seven and five, boom, he was out the door. <laughs> now, of course, his buyout was uh, much cheaper. That's, and we talk about the salary growth in college football, uh, really even more so than the salary growth, the, the stunning, uh, I guess, fiscal irresponsibility is the growth in buyouts. Yes. Salaries are increasing, but you look at buyouts today as compared to what they were, you know, even five, six, seven years ago, they, they, they've, what is the word for eight times more? You know, you go from quadrupled up on, on twice quadrupled. Maybe, right? it's, the, uh, oc, maybe it's octupled. Octupled. Yeah. Buyouts have like octupled in a span of, <laughs> of eight years. Right. I mean, that's, and, and Jimbo's salary was sort of at the forefront. Of that right, uh, Texas A&M yes. brought them brought him there on a ten-year, fully guaranteed contract, and that's sort of what was at the cutting edge of these buyouts and these contracts, at least in terms of guaranteed dollars, sort of jumping the rails. So it would be apropos if Texas A&M, which was the the program that got this all in motion by giving Jimbo that over-the-top ten-year, fully guaranteed contract, if it then is the school that shatters the record for historical buyout. Now, the situation at Arkansas is different, John, because Sam Pittman's buyout could decrease depending on how long Arkansas wants to wait. There is an an unusual clause in Pittman's contract that says if his overall record since the start of the 2021 season dips below 500, he can be fired at a discounted rate. Now, I'll spare you some of the percentages. Uh, The real dollars is if Pittman's record at the end of the season or at any point were to dip below 500 since the start of the 21 season, his buyout would decrease by about $5.5 million. It would go from $16.1 million to $12.7 million. Now, the difficult thing 
for Arkansas, if you're rooting for that buyout discount to kick in, is he would have to lose his remaining games to to reach that point. If he if he beats Florida International in mid-November, he's not dipping below five, the 500 mark in the last three seasons to unlock that discounted buyout. So unless Pittman and Arkansas is going to lose to Florida International, Arkansas would probably have to wait until next year if they want that buyout discount. Do you think that would be enough to give them pause to say, you know what, we're going to wait around till 2024, see if this gets better with a new offensive coordinator, right? Like there is a fall guy there. Danny knows is the fall guy. He's already been fired. You, you can reboot it with a new coordinator next year, see if it gets better. And if it doesn't, then by that point, Pittman's buyout would, would probably be reduced because his record would be to the point where that, that would kick in. Or you think it's more likely if they lose, you know, the next couple of weeks here, um, that they just say the hell with the $5 million, uh, we'll, we'll eat it. And, and if Pittman loses, you know, at Florida and then the Auburn dips to two and eight, they just say no more, take, take your buyout. We'll give you the extra 5 million and get out of here. I think another factor to consider is that to consider in this is what are Arkansas's expectations? The SEC is about to go to a 16 team league with uh, Oklahoma and, and Texas, both of whom have been more successful in Arkansas and are more successful by a wide margin right now. So, what does Arkansas expect to do? Does it expect to win the SEC? It never has since it's been in this league. I think that's that's out of the question. So, what would be a reasonable goal for Arkansas to? to make a New Year's Six Bowl occasionally? Uh, I don't know, but I would I would factor that into my the decision-making process. Maybe give it one more year with Sam Pittman and see what happens because who whom is Arkansas going to hire if it, if it gives up on Sam Pittman? Uh, what coach would want to go in there Unless he has a real secure, lucrative buyout, he he might look at that upcoming schedule, and with Oklahoma and Texas around now, and say, "Man, I don't know how much I can win there." Um, maybe that should factor into it. I think. Um, yeah, I agree with you, John. Because when you not all situations are created equal. Some schools, you look at them and go. Well, are they going to get someone better or are they just going to flush buyout money and, and be in the same place they were before? In the case of Texas A&M, I think they can do better. In fact, I know they can do better because you just have to go back one coach to find someone who was better. <laughs> Kevin Sumlin was undeniably better than Jimbo Fisher. So you don't have to go deep into the into the recesses of the brain to think how things could be better for, for Texas A&M. Uh, it's been better recently with Kevin Sumlin. And uh, with, with all of their riches, Texas A&M can strive for more than this. Now, Arkansas has had some moments where they've, they've risen up inside the SEC. But I want to go back to something that Arkansas's AD, Hunter Juracek, told me last year. Um, I was talking to Hunter at that time about Sam Pittman, and he talked about the other coaches. Uh, he didn't mention anybody by name. We talked about the other coaches he interviewed during that hiring process. And Juracek said, quote, many coaches that I talked to said, you can't win at the University of Arkansas. I don't believe I can be successful at Arkansas. That's an uphill battle. Uh, 
Um, and I do believe if you look back at some of the reporting at the time, I mean, Lane Kiffin, his name was associated with that job. Uh, he wound up at Ole Miss instead. There were up other couple big names that sort of popped up during that time. But it was obvious Arkansas couldn't lock down a big name, a coach with, with head coaching experience. And that's how they wound up with, with an offensive line coach, Sam Pittman, in the first place. So these are not two destinations that are equal. I do think Arkansas can strive for more than, than two and six, quite obviously. But point being, the level of candidate you would get at Texas A&M would be higher, I think, than the level of candidate you would get at Arkansas. But not only that, Jimbo's in year six. Like at this point, it, it, why would we expect anything different if you go forward with Jimbo? Pittman in year four, that is time where expectations increase, but you go back just a couple years and he won nine games. That was with a veteran roster that he inherited and came to fruition, developed, played well for Pittman in his second season. But that was also with offensive coordinator Kendall Bryles. And that's one advantage that I wonder if Pittman has in this scenario, John, is we've seen this move in the struggling coach playbook time after time. It buys you, you know, sort of a last ditch effort uh, when you're when you're heading toward the gallows of the of the hot seat. You fire a coordinator, and sometimes it buys you another year. Jimbo's already done that. He fired his offensive coordinator after last season. He brought in Bobby Petrino. On the record sheet, not all that much different. Right. He, he's already played that move. There's no trump card left in his hand. But this is Pittman's first time playing this card, the fire, the coordinator and make them the fall guy. I wonder, especially if, if Arkansas can get a couple more wins here, polish this turd up a little bit. You, you keep pumping that narrative that it was all Dan Enos's fault and Pittman will make a better hire this time around if he's not able to buy himself another season with that. Yes, uh, I think that's the right path for Arkansas at this point. And if you're going to invest more money, I would say invest it in an offensive coordinator rather than in a buyout. But because I just don't know whom Arkansas would hire at this point, that's that's uh, interesting that you bring that up about your your conversation with an AD. He was pretty candid about that. I thought from what you said. Uh, a problem here is you lose a game seven to three on your home field. It's better to lose 47 to 43. Uh, that way the crowd's engaged. It's an exciting game. You're back and forth. You, KJ Jefferson's rolling up yards and it's a fun experience. It's entertaining. You, you don't want to lose, but it's so much better to lose that way. When you can't move the ball, it just looks so so futile it just looks like oh this team we can't beat anybody look at that three points couldn't even score a touchdown on a team that is mediocre on its best day so if you spend a lot of money on an offensive coordinator get a Kendall Browse type and I would go for the excitement I would go go wide open spread uh up tempo whatever it takes which is what they were under Bryles, ironically yes, enough, yeah. right? In that I, 94 I know, season. I know. Yeah. And see, Sam Pittman is an offensive line coach. So he's he's probably leans more to we wanna we wanna knock some helmets off at the line of scrimmage, assert our will on the opposition, and just grind them into the ground. Well, good luck doing that in the SEC. So I think that's his move now. You get another quarterback, you get one out of that 
for lack of a better term, get one out of the Mike Leach coaching tree that's wide open. And maybe you don't believe in it that much, but you don't believe you want to get fired either. So to me, that's your play. And you get fans excited. If you hire an offense coordinator whose offense is scoring 40 points a game, then there's there's hope, there's encouragement that, well, at least we'll be more fun to watch. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, is Arkansas's play at this point. Final thought on this, John, before we we move on to other topics. Um, I, I think we've we've squared in on on Jimbo and Sam Pittman being on the two hottest seats. Not that there's not any temperature in some certain other areas of the SEC, but those are those are the two spots where it's probably warmest at the moment. Who has the better chance to be fired first? If you had to pick between one of these two guys, who's being shown the door first, Jimbo or Sam Pittman? I really think Jimbo, because I think he could go seven and five. And as you pointed out, he's made the coordinator move. That won't help him. No. He's way out there on a limb now, and there's nobody coming to his rescue. There's no one to call. Uh, no no, uh, uh, you know, highfalutin, uh, offensive hot shot that you can count on to excite the fan base. I don't think they're going to get excited. If you go seven and five, it doesn't matter whom he hires. They're they're not going to get excited. It's on Jimbo now. And I, I just think A&M is a team that should aspire to win that, to, to win a national championship. It has everything it takes everything and particularly in the nil era and to go seven and five is just unacceptable and maybe you can find 77 former aggies to give a million dollars a piece and you can bid jimbo adieu and move on all right we are moving on to other topics here today john uh, it's a bit of a a week schedule this weekend, and I know sometimes when we say that, that's that's when uh, things are, are ripe for upsets. But you know, there's a cocktail party this weekend with uh, Georgia, Florida, and, and Jacksonville. I'll be covering that game for the first time. I've never in all my in my travels, I've never covered the cocktail party. Uh, I know you have. What should I what should I expect from the the scene and the setting there in in Jacksonville this week? You'll pretty much you can expect to see a very so- sober crowd. <laughs> I'm I'm just kidding. I mean, it's a cocktail party for a reason. Uh, yeah, I was in Jacksonville as a columnist in the mid '80s, and both teams were having. Florida was having some downtime, at, at, but then Georgia was kind of rolling. But the main thing I remember about the rivalry there at the stadium in Jacksonville after a Georgia victory, the the sheer weight of the crowd pushed down a wire fence, and they on they came onto the field. And I remember one member of the Georgia faithful on his knees, munching on the turf there at the stadium. So, As one does. A, as as any dog will do when he's nauseated. So, uh, I, I, yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good atmosphere. Um, I just think the game doesn't, it just doesn't have the same feel to it that it used to. It's usually on CBS. But right now, Florida... You look at the records, five and two for Florida, seven and zero oh for Georgia. It doesn't have the same competitive level that you kind of would like to see at that at that uh, 
at that game. This has been a, a neutral site game going on back, John, as you know, in, in Jacksonville. The, the contract has been extended through the 2024 and 2025 seasons to keep it in Jacksonville, uh, at least contractually through the next couple of years. But, you know, it's it's been sort of a never-ending story about where this game is going to go long-term. I mean, I, I don't think it's any secret that Kirby Smart, if he could wave his magic wand, if you listen to some of the things he's said over the years, sure seems like Kirby maybe would favor uh, this game going to a home-and-home. And Billy Napier, probably hard to say with him. He hasn't been as outspoken about it, but I wonder if, if Napier, too, would, would sort of prefer home-and-home. Home. But it's, it's not all about the coaches. A lot of times coaches get their way with, with what they want. This is, this is a little bit bigger than that. Um, it, in general, I don't love neutral site games, and we've seen college football go back in the direction of playing you know, the biggest games in the sport on, on college campuses. This one, though, does have a deep-rooted tradition in Jacksonville. Uh, it's closer, the location of the game is closer, m- much closer to Gainesville than it is to Athens, but it, you know, it is sort of in that melting pot area of, of fan bases. Do you like this game being in Jacksonville? Would you like to see it pivot to campus sites? Um, I don't have that strong opinion on it. It, it doesn't. Even though I lived in Jacksonville for a couple of years and covered that game in Jacksonville, this game doesn't have it doesn't resonate with me the way uh, Texas, Oklahoma, and Dallas does. I mean, I just think of Oklahoma as North Texas anyway. I, I think there's not a whole lot of difference in the Texas and Oklahoma mindset in general. Um, so it wouldn't bother me either way. But we also have to keep in mind how will expansion and how will the future schedules affect this game? I kind of think it will end up being played on the two campuses. I think at some point it does too. I don't know if it's, if that'll happen by 2026 when this current contract, I don't know the timeline of it, but you know, if we're, if we're sitting here 10 years from now, I think we're talking about the cocktail party still being played every year. I think this is one that the sec will preserve no matter what schedule format they go to. But I sort of think it, it at some point moves onto campus sites. As it pertains to Georgia, John, we very briefly touched last week on the ankle injury to Brock Bowers, one of college football's top talents. We've talked about him at length before. He does much more than your normal tight end. He's one of the best players in the country, regardless of position. He's, he's going to be out for several weeks. When he returns is a little bit unclear. We know he won't play in this game. Coming into the season, when I looked at Georgia's schedule, I was looking at like mid-November when we would start to learn whether Georgia, learn more at least about whether Georgia is a contender or pretender because their September and October schedules was complete cake. I mean, they were just just eating bonbons for, for, for two months, right? But now there's this four-week stretch that I think even expands beyond mid-November. Florida... This is not a great Florida team. It is a rivalry game. Florida's 5-2, and two, and Graham Mertz is playing pretty well. Then you have number 16, Missouri, who I talked about Arkansas being the toast of, of college football a couple years ago. Now it's Eli Drinkwitz. He has Missouri at 7-1. and one. They'll go to Athens in a couple weeks. 
there, Missouri's off this week, and ooh, reputation goes. You don't want to face Eli Drinkwitz coming off a bye week, or did I just make that up right now? You just made that up. <laughs> and then, and then on the heels of Missouri, uh, Ole Miss, which is sitting with just one loss to Alabama, they go to Athens, and then road game at Tennessee. So this is a pretty defining four week stretch here, I think, for Georgia. Knowing that Brock Bowers may not play in any of those games, do you think Georgia slips up? Or do you think they emerge from this four-game stretch undefeated? Because they're not losing to Georgia Tech in the regular season finale. If they go undefeated through this four games, they're going to be undefeated in Atlanta. Do you think they get to Atlanta undefeated, or do you think they drop one out of the next four? If I had to predict, I would say they drop one. I, I can't say which team would do it, which team would pull off an upset. I just, even at the start of the season, I just didn't think Georgia uh, – could win three consecutive national championships. There's a reason nobody's done it since the 1930s. And I wonder how tough Minnesota's schedule was in those years when it won three straight. Uh, I just think it's so hard to do that. So many things have to go right. And something has all already gone terribly wrong. The loss of Brock Bowers, I almost think Georgia could withstand a loss of a quarterback better than losing Brock Bowers. Carson Beck has played well, but Brandon Vandegrift is hes a highly touted recruit. He stayed with Georgia. He knows the system. He's been okay in re- reserve roles. He's a better runner. Um, and even Gutter Stockton, the third guy, is, is was very highly recruited, a top prospect. But and I wouldn't say, I don't know of any other team in the country I would probably say this about, but I just think Brock Bowers meant so much that offense, he's the one guy that opposing defenses say, okay, what will we do about him? That's the first order of business. What can we do about him? And most teams are frequently double coverage, cover him. And Georgia has done it, did it first two years. It's done it again this season with a different coordinator. It moves Brock Bowers around. It puts him he he's kind of a hybrid wide receiver. He can he get out. I hadn't seen him caught from behind. I can't remember seeing that. He runs like a wide receiver. He runs like a running back. I'm convinced he would be Georgia's best option as a short yardage running back. So all those things and all the scheming it requires, I think that's a big loss. And I think it will cost Georgia. I don't ex- I would be surprised if he played the rest of the season. I mean, I, maybe he'll get ready for the for the bowl game. This is, a, I think, it was was called a high ankle sprain. Isn't that correct? Yeah, is and that, he's had that tight he, the tightrope surgery that we've seen. Um, I'd never heard of tightrope surgery uh, like a decade ago, but tightrope surgery, I, I believe, that's what uh, Tua Tungavaloa had uh, it a was, few years ago. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to. Said yeah. Coleman, the wide receiver, all SEC wide receiver at Tennessee, both had it. And they say that expedites healing. But Tua was not the same guy for quite a while after that. Cedric Tillman never was after that the rest of the season. I, I you know, I know high, high ankle sprains take a guy out a long time, but I just don't think that's a, um, a cure-all. I just think and even if he comes back, do you really want to risk, if he's not 100%, do you really want to risk playing him? I Maybe think it depends on, on on what's on the line, right? If he if, if Georgia could 
make it to the college football playoff and Brock Bowers feels like he's healthy enough to play, well, what's on the line? A national championship. I think you could see him coming back and playing at, at that point. I mean, if you're headed for a an also-ran bowl, a cotton bowl or something like that, well, then maybe it's a – no offense to the, the fine uh-huh. folks uh, in, in Texas, but that's not part of the college football playoff this year, right? So I, I think it depends on what the what the stakes are. And and by the way, John, you, you threw a bit of a cheap shot at the 1936 Golden Gophers who three-peated, and uh-huh. uh, I, I, I've got the – I've got the rebuttal for you here. This was okay. uh, this was the 1936 Minnesota schedule. Mm-hmm. No cupcakes on this one. They started on the road at Washington, then they beat Nebraska, Michigan, Purdue, Northwestern, which apparently Northwestern was a really good football team in uh, 1936. They were ranked number three in the nation. Northwestern handed Minnesota its lone loss, but then it rallied, beat Iowa, Texas, and Wisconsin. And uh, three-peated. So that's a power five only. I apologize to the Gophers. And if they were that good in the 30s, I wonder what has gone wrong since. A deep dive <laughs> for another episode. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll explore that in another time. Two things. Carson Beck, the quarterback, who I think has done fine this year, replacing Stetson Bennett. He's not Stetson Bennett. He doesn't present that running threat, that scrambling threat, that big game threat. Uh, but he's played well and he let a comeback against Auburn. But his safety valve has always been Brock Bowers. That's whom he went to when the game was on the line against Auburn there at Jordan Hare Stadium. Then um, then it becomes incumbent on the other wide receivers to, to step up. Lad McConkey to me, becomes the key figure now in the offense. He's got big play potential. He was hurt for most of the first part of the season, but he's gotten back into the playing rotation. Assuming he's healthy now after an open date, I look for him to be the the main guy. He, you know, a completely different type player than Brock Bowers. He can do all the things he can do, but those wide receivers now really have to play better. And Georgia does have a. Um, does have another tight end who's not bad. The sophomore, what's his name? Is it Oscar? Hey, what's it? Huh? <laughs> Who, what did you say? No, Oscar hey, It's Oscar Delp. I said Oscar Oscar Delp, yeah. Just, uh, I actually saw Oscar Della Hoya get uh, cheated out of a gold medal in South Korea in the Olympics. A long I time thought you ago. might have a good Oscar Della. Yes, I, I do. I figured I'd serve you up I can see. I can still see the judge hold up the knock. North Korean boxer's hand as Oscar De La Hoya looks over there at him with this bizarre, what? How, how can that be? I beat the guy to death. He's winning the fight. I'm surprised the guy didn't keel over before he was all, getting the gold medal. He was so beaten down. But <laughs> yeah, well, anyway. The, the tight end in question, yes. Is, yeah, is Oscar, Oscar Dell. Dell. Yeah, I think he's, he can't do the things Brock can, but he's He's a good player, I, I, so it's not as though they're barren. I don't think George is barren at any position. They've got good players all through the depth chart, so maybe everybody will step up, and, and maybe this is a challenge to Kirby Smart's motivational uh, ability. We've seen him mov- motivate this teams in big games, and I think now his message to that team is, you know what we've lost, but we're not a one-man team. And you need to prove it. 
and you need it need to prove it for Brock because we want him back when we're playing for a national championship. You got to get him to that game. And you just talk as if Bowers is going to be back, and so uh, he's yes. sitting there here and like, oh, I guess I'm guess I'm coming back. No. <laughs> John, as, as you mentioned, Mike, you think they're going to, I don't know how much conviction you feel on this, uh, but you think if you had to pick, you think they lose one out of the next four. Now, you didn't want to pick a team, but I'm not letting you off the hook. So we look at this next four-game stretch, Florida, neutral site, Missouri and Ole Miss at home, Tennessee on the road. I would pick Tennessee as the most likely team to beat Georgia. Now, if I had to pick on the money line in that game, of course, I would pick Georgia. But if I have to say they're going to lose one of those four, I would pick Tennessee because of the location of that game. It's the only true road game. And I just don't see Georgia losing at home. I also don't see Georgia losing in Jacksonville to this Florida team. Now, if the Missouri or Ole Miss games were on the road, I think I would head in that direction rather than Tennessee. I mean, we saw Missouri... A, a much weaker Missouri team last year, give Georgia all could handle for about three and a half quarters before wilting. Well, Missouri's not wilting this season. It did against LSU, but again, Missouri has proven itself to be pretty dangerous. Quarterback Brady Cook's playing really well. Cody Schrader, the running back, leads the SEC in rushing. If that game was in Columbia, I think I'd pick Missouri as the most dangerous team. Maybe if the Ole Miss game was in Oxford, I'd pick them. Because of the locations of the games, I'm going with Tennessee as still being the most dangerous to, to Georgia. Would you pick them or would you pick uh, one of those road teams, road Missouri or road Ole Miss? Yeah, it's hard to imagine Georgia losing at Sanford Stadium. I could see it having close calls there. Uh, Neyland Stadium has become one of the best home field advantages in college football. Hasn't always been this strong, but it's really good now. And that Tennessee's won 13 in a row, I think, there. So the thing about ups, the beauty to me of upsets is logic doesn't apply. I mean, we can sit here and say, well, that's uh, Tennessee's uh, five and two. It's uh, had a win over Texas A&M. It's uh, great at home. Uh, got a good pass rush. So that will bring the Tennessee will bring more heat to Carson Beck than he's experienced as a starting quarterback. So yeah, that's the logical pick. But going back to last season, how there was nothing logical about Missouri pressing Georgia into the fourth quarter and threatening to win the game and knock them out of the championship race. So yeah, I would say Tennessee also because of the home field. And because I wonder, Carson Beck could handle the heat in Jordan-Hare Stadium, but we'd have to handle a better defense and a more high pressure on the quarterback defense. So I would say Tennessee also. Speaking of things that are hard to predict, John, you and I would have had November 4th circled on the calendar as the day the SEC West, for all intents and purposes, would be decided. And it seems like that might be the case. That's when Alabama will host LSU. Alabama in the driver's seat in the West, they're off this week. LSU also off this week. Now, LSU would need a little help because they lost the head-to-head with Ole Miss, but it could get that help because Georgia remains on the Ole Miss schedule. So we would have thought the West would probably be decided on that November 4th date, and it very well could be. 
I don't think we would have predicted that the SEC East most important game this season would occur on November 4th. But Missouri still has everything in front of it, John. Even with that loss to LSU, if they were to spring an upset on Georgia on November 4th, we could be talking about Missouri winning the division for the third time since joining the league. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but who would have thought we would have been sitting here in late October saying that the SEC East goes through Georgia and not Tennessee, not Georgia, Florida, not Georgia, Kentucky. It goes through Georgia and Missouri. Yeah, I think maybe, I think Missouri has some, certainly some offensive weapons. Uh, I picked it to finish uh, six in the SEC East. Uh, Disrespectful, by the way. Very, very disrespectful. So I've been so impressed with Missouri this year, in part because I had so, you know, I, I didn't know if it would even be able to run on the field without a bunch of its guys falling down. So low expectations. And so now my opinion has changed and it's, uh, I could see the Tigers finishing nine and three. Um, I think though against Georgia, just recent history tells us in that kind of game, that will bring out the very best in Georgia at home. We saw it last year at Sanford Stadium against Tennessee. When Tennessee came in there, a newly held number one ranking by the college football uh, poll, playoff poll. So Georgia came out and dominated. It was game was over at halftime. Rain slowed down the onslaught, but it was not close at all. We saw it in the national championship against TCU, certainly. So to me, that might be the least likely game for uh, Georgia to lose. And I don't mean to disrespect Missouri again. Uh, I know you, you, you would never go down that road again. You've been down that road probably a dozen times over the years, but I know how to get there. <laughs> yeah, you I do. can find the road without GPS and I have a horrible sense of directions, but I can find that road. All right, let's get to some picks, John, a little bit of a lighter schedule this week. Records update first. We both went three and three last week. Uh, We both hit our lock of the week, so pay particular attention to who John and I pick on our locks. We're we're sure to get it right. For the season, I still have a half-game lead on you, John, in our drive to 500. Uh, I am 20, 24, and 1, so I'm four games below 500. You are 19, 24, and 2. The hunt continues this weekend. Before we get into the SEC games, John, I got... One outside of the conference on the schedule. Every now and then I like to throw a top 25 non-SEC matchup in it. And sort of the game of the week is Oregon, five and a half point favorite against Utah. Utah knocked out your your boys. Southern Cal. I, I think you it's anyway, fair to say you're off the USC and Lincoln oh, Riley bandwagon. Oh, yeah, they are not my boys. They are <laughs> disgraced to college football and I wish them nothing but uh, failure the rest of the way. They betrayed me, and I take that's personal. Yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I know how how you can turn on on someone. And yes, you could be driving the bandwagon one day, and then pouring kerosene on it uh, the next. And I see that uh, I, that can in hand. I can flip flop not one day to the next, but from one minute to the next. Keep that in mind. Yes. 
Well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stay out West for this pick, and then we'll get back into the SEC, John. So Oregon is a five-and-a-half-point favorite at Utah. Utah's a hard team to pick. They've uh, I watched them earlier this year against Oregon State, and I mean, just an ugly game to take in. Utah could do nothing right in that one, but otherwise they've been pretty good this year. They were good against Florida, good against Southern Cal. Um, I don't know. This, this feels like a letdown though. After the, after the win over the Trojans, I think Oregon's pretty good. I sort of think Oregon might win a rematch with Washington if they could just get there. So I think Oregon wins on the road and I think they cover the five and a half points. I'm with you on that. I really respect Utah, what it's done, and the way it goes against the uh, grain there in the Pac-12 with a physical style of play, and that's just kryptonite, kryptonite for Southern Cal. It just can't deal with uh, Utah, which is playing with really a third-string quarterback. It's uh, Cam rising, and if he'd been healthy all this year, I think this team would be unbeaten and in the running for the national championship. Uh, but I agree with you. I think Oregon, uh, a more uh, well-rounded team than Southern Cal, even playing at Utah, and that's a hostile venue, uh, I would still pick Oregon to win and to cover. All right, let's hop into the SEC, John. We talked about Jimbo Fisher and how every game really matters to him at this point, and we talked about you can't lose to 2-5 and five South Carolina on your home field. That may surpass losing to App State last year on its home field is Jimpo's worst loss. And if you don't think that's true, just watch South Carolina play for about an hour and you'll see what I'm talking about. So Texas A&M, 14-point favorite at home against the Gamecocks. Who are you taking here? South Carolina, it just seems to be worse by the week. I, I don't know how quarterback Spencer Rattler stands it, but he keeps coming out there. He keeps playing the game. I would have left a few weeks earlier. Um, gotten ready for the NFL, uh, talked a lot to my agent, but he's still out there. So I guess he gives South Carolina one somewhat of a chance, but I still like A&M. I, I just think South Carolina is really bad. Neither team has a very good offensive line, but A&M does play good defense. So in, in South Carolina's defense, I think is declining as we go along. So I'll go with A&M. I will too. I just, I, I have a hard time seeing many scenarios at this point where South Carolina doesn't get routed. And in fact, John, if we were to do some really impromptu SEC power rankings, normally Vanderbilt has that spot under lock and key, but conversations getting a little more crowded for the seller in the SEC power rankings at this moment. And uh, South Carolina would be somewhere in that conversation. I don't I don't think they'd be in the number 14 spot, but they're they're in the dialogue at least. You take Spencer Rattler off that team if he decides, "Hey guys, it was great playing with you. I appreciate my NIL deal, but I'm moving on now." He leaves and this team is 14th. All right, uh, moving on to the game I will be at a cocktail party. Georgia is a 15 and a half point favorite over Florida. I'm going Florida here. John, I don't – Florida's another team I don't really like to be involved picking with them because uh, a little unpredictable what's going to show up week over week. But without Brock Bowers, maybe I just feel some hesitancy to think they can cover 15 and a half. 
might need to see it to believe it. And boy, the Gators aren't, they're not always pretty, but they found a way to get to five and two, sort of against all odds. So I'll say they find a way uh, getting the, the 15 and a half points. Georgia wins by two touchdowns. So I'll take that extra point and a half for Florida. I, I think that half point's really big here. I mean, I could see a a 15-point win for Georgia. 35-20, um, yeah. Yeah, I I just don't feel really – this is a game I really don't feel very good with about, but probably would flip a coin. But I, I guess I would take Florida too. Billy Napier has a history of of beating the spread. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't tell that in against Kentucky earlier this year, but I like the way Graham Mertz is playing. Uh, Georgia's defense has slacked off at times this year. hadn't been what I thought it would. Gave up twenty points to Vanderbilt. That shouldn't happen. So I'll go with Florida as well. How about Tennessee, John? They have a chance to end this long losing streak to Alabama on the road. They, they ended their overall losing streak to Alabama last year. Go up at half, 20 to seven in Tuscaloosa on Saturday. And really could have been more than that. Tennessee kicked two field goals inside the 10 yard line, but still they were dominating that game. Josh Heupel was scheming circles around the Alabama defense. He schemed a wide receiver onto a linebacker for a touchdown. He fit, Drew up a play to a tight end for another score. Everything was going right. I heard the Tennessee fans were singing Rocky Talk acapella in the stands at halftime, John. You could start to feel the euphoria building up in the in the big orange portions of the stadium. And then uh, Tennessee threw up all over itself in the second half. Just a 27 to nothing route. All Alabama. I know Tennessee fans were disgruntled about the fourth down aggressiveness from Josh Heupel. I don't know if it would have mattered. I mean, regardless of what you think of that situation, that second half was all Alabama. Tennessee could do nothing, um, and and they blew it. They There's not going to be many opportunities where Florida's more beatable on the road than they were this year, and Alabama's more beatable on the road than they were this year, and, and Tennessee blew it against both of them. Yes, I, I was, uh, as you know, we both we write on tight deadlines, so I need to have my column in as – just about as soon as the game is over. And then first at the end of the first half, I was, I pretty much had a Tennessee wins column done and, and what that meant for the rest of the season, I would need to update it, fine tune it, craft it into an award winning, uh, pros. Uh, but after two plays of the second half, I said, whoops, got to start working on that Alabama wins column. I mean, it was almost like it was almost a rope-a-dope strategy. We'll uh, let uh, we'll dupe Tennessee into believing it has a, actually has a chance to win this game and light up the victory cigars, and then we will absolutely pummel it, and that's what it did. A total domination. That series, Tennessee hasn't won at Bryant-Denny since 2003, and that second half – is about as bad as it's been for Tennessee there. Just total annihilation. Uh, so now, this week, Tennessee looking to lick its wounds, and it's playing an opponent uh, that, historically, it's had its way with. They're three-and-a-half-point favorites at Kentucky. Tennessee's struggles, they, they've really struggled on the road during Josh Heupel's tenure. As you mentioned earlier, they've been great at Neyland. However, I'm not real impressed with what we've seen from Kentucky lately. 
And I'm going to take Tennessee to cover the three and a half in Lexington. Yeah, I would probably take Tennessee to cover. You gave Kentucky 10 more points. I mean, this history factors into this. I've seen uh, Kentucky teams that were better than Tennessee couldn't beat Tennessee and couldn't beat it at, uh, in Lexington. It just, in this series, it's one of those series where the Wildcats strain themselves and do everything possible to find ways to lose a game, and their coaches are also a partner in that. So I expect the very worst out of Kentucky. I'm sure Mark Stoops will have uh, something to say about the NIL deal. Tennessee has a pretty good uh, sports collective, and apparently based on Mark Stoops' comments after the Georgia game, uh, they are not as uh, the deals aren't as lucrative for the Wildcat team, so I, I would go with Tennessee. I don't. This I think this will be a get well game for Tennessee. Okay, and will it be a get well game for Auburn in a game where maybe twenty points will be enough to win? Auburn's a six point favorite at home against Mississippi State. Mississippi State they can get to bowl eligibility, John. They're they're four and three. They've got Southern Miss, slowly Southern Miss on the schedule. They just got to get one more conference win after beating Arkansas. Auburn's one of the weaker teams in the conference, but it's it's on the Plains. Tigers are a six-point favorite. Who will you pick here? I'll go with Auburn. I think it's, um, yeah, both of these teams will struggle to move the ball, I'm sure. Um, but I, I just, in general, I like Auburn at home. And... Uh, I think in preseason, I really had a hard time, and I went back and forth on this and thinking, who will be the worst team in the West? Auburn and Mississippi State, back and forth. Depending on the day, I would say one or the other. Uh, I guess now I'm thinking it's Arkansas. Which, but, uh, yeah, I like Auburn here to cover the spread. I might like Auburn to win at home, but in two low-scoring teams like this, not much quarterback play out of either one of them. Mississippi State playing with a backup, Mike Wright. Auburn, doesn't matter who's out there. The quarterback play has been a bugaboo. So I think Auburn maybe gets the win, but I don't trust it to cover six and a half points. Give me Mississippi State in the points. So that's our only game where we differ on. And we go to our lock of the week, John, where we uh, we swept the board last week. We, we both hit our locks. Uh, I'll give you one. I'm going with Ohio State. Ohio State, you think they're going to have a, a letdown after the, the win over Penn State? I'm not seeing it. They're 14.5-point favorites on the road against Wisconsin. Wisconsin had all it could handle from Illinois last week. Wisconsin's playing a backup quarterback in Braden Locke after the injury to Tanner Mordecai. So I think Ohio State's maybe coming closer to hitting its stride. Just 14.5 points to cover. I think they'll do it. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And, and remember what I said a few minutes ago about how I can go back and forth on teams, not in a matter of days, but in a matter of minutes. That was foreshadowing. Uh, my boys, Southern Cal, that's my lock of the week. I'm back with the boys, uh, giving, I think, 11 points to Cal. I see 10 and a half here. You only, only have to cover 10 and a half, even better for you. Oh, it's even better. Yeah, I just think uh, this is the kind of game Southern Cal will – I think Caleb Williams will have a big game. Uh, 
it's not nothing's on the line here, but Cal Southern Cal likes to put on a show, and I think it can put on a show against Cal. All right, John's back on the SEC, the USC bandwagon just like that. Uh, the fans in, in Arkansas and Texas A&M, uh, they got off the bandwagon a long time ago, and then I don't know if they're going to be getting back on anytime soon. We'll keep an eye on the hot seat. Enjoy the games this week. We'll be back with you next week on SEC Football Unfiltered.